Take your Bibles and turn with us to the New Testament book of John chapter 8. The New Testament book of John chapter 8. The Gospel of John chapter 8. I'm actually going to give you the, some of the application before we even do the sermon today. And one of the reasons is because I want you to catch the application if we don't get to all of it. Because we have a time frame here and uh, we know that we need to deal with that. But I want you to look at John chapter 8. And uh, what I find amazing about this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is rescuing a woman from getting stoned, and he almost gets stoned himself. Do you see that? They bring Jesus, they bring to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they say, she's got to be stoned. And Jesus, of course, successfully deals with that situation. And then what do they do in 59, verse 59? And then they took up stones to throw at him. So, you know, we're dealing with some people that just, uh, you know, they're, they're just not, you know, either they're, they're, they're mean, they're nasty. And the problem is that they're religious leaders for the most part. You wouldn't think that religious leaders would be mean and nasty like that, would you? Well, we'll take a look at this passage of Scripture, but I want you to be aware of the fact that it actually begins in chapter 7. And I just want to bring it back to your attention. In chapter 7, the Bible tells us that Jesus is having a discussion with his, his physical brothers and sisters. And they're telling him that, you know, Jesus, you need to, you know, if, if you want people to know who you are, you need to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Because in John chapter 7, verse 1, verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. And I bring this to your attention for a, a very good reason, uh, but let me just quickly get there. The Bible tells us that Jesus went up to the Feast of the Tabernacles about midway in verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And then the Bible tells us on the last day, that great day of the feast, in verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, Jesus always taught in, the, in concrete terms. He wasn't one for speaking in abstract terms. When I was growing up, one of the big problems I had um, was often God's Word was, was preached in an abstract way and not a concrete way, not a way where you could put your both feet down on the ground and you could understand. You know, a lot of times I come away saying, oh, I don't know if I got that. I don't know what that really, really means from a physical perspective for my, my life and, and what's happening with me personally. But the reason why I'm talking about this Feast of the Tabernacle is because either the Feast of the Tabernacle is now over and they're packing up and they're taking down all the decorations. And you know the Feast of the Tabernacle lasted for a whole week and everybody had to go camping. Couldn't stay in your houses during the week of the fast, Feast of the Passover. If you came to the city of Jerusalem, you stayed out in the open air under booze that you made personally for that occasion. And it was Jesus' custom to come to the, uh, Jerusalem, of course, for the Jewish feasts. And it was a great time. The Feast of Tabernacles is probably one of my favorite feasts because, because it, uh, there was just a lot, of, a lot of singing and a lot of... Uh, it was just a lot of fun in addition to observing um, and thanking the Lord for all of his provisions. 
And uh, the thing is that when in, in chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus, chapter 7, verse 53, when everything is winding down now, everybody is going to his own home. But Jesus, who is staying in Jerusalem, went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, what was Jesus' custom when he came to Jerusalem to stay? When he was in Jerusalem, where would he stay? Where would he stay? Does anybody remember? What was his custom? He stayed at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? And when you read other passages of Scripture, and you see Jesus going back to Bethany, which was in the little town of Bethlehem, I've been there. I've been there. It's, it's on the hill right before you go over the Mount of Olives, where you can see the city of Jerusalem. It's just right out of range. You can't see Jerusalem, but as soon as you walk up the mountain, you're right there. You can see it. And it was just a mile or so walk from there into the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus went every day. And then when he was done teaching in the temple, he would come back to Bethany, where he would spend the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus only, only uh, during the Feast of the Tabernacle, and he slept outside. Okay. Probably in a makeshift booth. All right. A lean-to of some sort. All right, now, two other things real quick. I got I to share this with you as far as the Feast of the Tabernacle. If I were to give you an itinerary of the week's events, you know, we, we have the fairs, and they give you an itinerary. They print it up, and they tell you what's going to happen on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. If I were to give you an itinerary of the Feast of the Tabernacles, uh, there's two things that I want you to know. In addition to all the other festivities... There was always a daily water-pouring ceremony. And that water-pouring ceremony is no doubt the illustration that is in the minds of everybody when on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See how concrete Jesus is? He wants everybody to link what he is offering Eternal life, the water of life, he's offering that. And you can understand that by how you crave physical water and the spiritual. Now, the second thing, the second thing in the itinerary was that there was always a light ceremony every night in the temple, a light ceremony every night. And this isn't just where you'd walk into the, into the tab temple and you would uh, light candles and that would be it. No, no, no. This, this light ceremony was really, really big. This was equivalent in that day to going to the stadium it, and, and from our house, the stadium there in Connellsville is just a couple blocks away. So when those lights come on, we see the glow of the stadium from our house. And if we don't want to go to the game, we can practically hear the game too. But you see, it's equivalent to putting all those lights shining on the stadium. Because in that day, they put huge poles that went up. Uh, well, I think one, one, one indicated like 75 feet in the air. And those poles that were put into the court of the women in the, in the temple area, those poles that were put there had four candelabas around them filled with gallons of, fuel, well, gallons of oil. And, um, and you, you, the young Levites would be the ones who would take the ladders and, and put them up against the pole and then climb the top of the pole every evening and light those lights. And when they lit all of those lights, it would, it would, it would just be a glow all over the temple. But not only that, but it, no, no matter where you lived in the city of Jerusalem or the region around, you could see the glow of the lights of that daily, 
night ceremony during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so it's not surprising then to see Jesus say in verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See how Jesus illustrates that during the Feast of the Tabernacles. So those two things. And so we're in the chapter where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not what? Walk in darkness, but have the light of light. You know, when um, uh, I like to see the glow of a city from a distance. I love to see the glow of Seven Springs from down here in the middle of winter. Uh, I love to see the glow of a stadium. The children of Israel were enamored with the glow of light in the temple and the, and the feasting and the dancing and the, um, and the singing and all of the music, the special music that was provided. And they would do it all night long, all night long. And then if there were still people there and by morning time, then they would go into the daily, daily activities and they would put the choirs on the steps and they would sing and, and, uh, and then they would continue with the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's a good thing. They, they enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one of the highlights of the year. In fact, I just want to say this to you. It's not in my notes. But the Bible says that in the millennial reign of Christ, the one thing God is requiring every nation to do is to observe the Feast of the Tabernacles. <laughs> Did you know that? Did you know that? Oh, just a little sidelight there. But anyway, in verse 2 of chapter 8, the Bible says, Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. That's to who? To Jesus. And he sat down and he taught them. So here, all of the people are coming in. Everybody seems to flock to Jesus and wants to sit at the feet of Jesus. Now, we've told you that there's a great application here for all of us, that we live 2,000 years from that occasion when Jesus was here on the face of the earth. Jesus is coming back. Just as he came the first time, he's coming back the second time. And you don't think we're not going to be sitting at the feet of Jesus? We are going to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. But the people are sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he taught them. And that's a great application for you and I because how much red letter stuff do you see in chapter 8? There's a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot of red letter stuff in chapter 8. And that means that there's a lot of stuff that you and I can recreate in our own thinking that Jesus taught the people 2,000 years ago in the temple. And the one thing that he talks about constantly is his relationship with the Father, his relationship with God. You know, the one thing you could never do is drive a wedge between God and Christ. You couldn't do it. It was impossible to do that because they're indivisible. You know, God is of one substance, but it's confusing to us because God came to us in the form of a man, so we have the person of Christ who is God-man. But listen, as far as Jesus and the Father are concerned, there's no way to drive a wedge between them. In fact, if anybody could ever drive a wedge between the Father and the Son, you could then claim that Christianity was polytheistic, but you can't do that. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We think alike. We do the same things. 
There's no way in the world you're going to see a difference. There's a distinction between the Father and the Son, but in that's the, only that respect, because we are both together on everything, because I am God, as well as the Father. Now, do you understand it? Do I understand it? No. I don't understand it. I can't in my feeble mind. I'm always surprised at people who think they can understand it and then have it all figured out. You can't. God doesn't want us to understand that. But the reason why I'm focusing on that is because this is the big problem that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are having with Jesus. They're having a huge problem with this. And they are, in fact, uh, they're constantly uh, interrupting. If there's one negative thing about sitting at the feet of Jesus and looking at everything that he says about his relationship with the Father, the one negative thing is that the religious leaders are constantly, constantly dis a distraction in Jesus speaking to those who really want to hear. But the real nice thing about that is we get a chance to look and see how we need to talk to people who do not, um, do not know the Lord and uh, who have their minds made up, who are not going to listen to anything you have to say because they think they know it all. We get an idea of how to talk to them. Now, let's look at this for just a second before I give you some application here. Now, the Bible tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes, they brought, people are sitting there listening to Jesus, right? And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, this is verse 3, the Bible says, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. True or false? True. But not only her, but the person that she was having the adultery with. But notice what they say here. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but as if you're not going to agree with the law, as if you're going to have something to say that is diametrically opposed to what the Old Testament teaches, but what do you say? Now, someone suggested that this here is, um, is, uh, is um, well, uh, already they're showing their antagonism, right? And, 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 and John confirms this. John says, this they said because they were what? In verse 6, they were what? Testing him. And the reason they were testing him is not to see if he's telling the truth so they can embrace the truth. They were testing him because they wanted something of which to accuse him. But Jesus, who's the perfect communicator... He never ran from an argument if he needed to argue. He's going to be arguing with them a lot here. But Jesus, who's the perfect communicator, who always knew what to say and always knew when to say it. If there's anybody who, has, uh, who perfectly knows how to deal with that passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. It's Jesus. He knew. He knew. He knew. And so his initial reaction to this particular statement is silence. Now, he answers all the others with facts that directly relate to the questions that they're asking. But notice what he does here. 
And they're testing him to see if they can accuse him of something. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. As if he wasn't hearing them and not listening to them. And so they keep asking him. They keep asking him, you're not listening to us. We want to know what you think should be done under the circumstances. Now, a lot of people speculate as to what Jesus wrote on the ground, but we don't know. We can't figure that out. You can get a hundred commentaries and pull them off the shelves and you have speculation after speculation after speculation. But I'm not going to distract you with any speculation. The fact of the matter is God does not tell us what he wrote. And finally, Jesus says to them, look at this, verse 7. If you have a New King James Bible, what you say is going to be the same exactly word for word. Everybody together. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her. Powerful words, right? Powerful words. You see, it was the right thing at the right time. And he knew exactly what to say. And instead of getting into an argument where they would be just having blows for the next two or three or four hours or all day long, and, and everybody's sitting there wondering, what on earth are they, conclusion are they coming to? The Bible tells us that he who was without sin among you cast the first stone. It was powerful in the sense that when he went down and when he stooped down again and wrote on the ground, Verse 19 says, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one. They all leave. They all drop their stones and they leave. Now it's crowded. Court is crowded. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles. So this is just that little crowd around them. And the reason why I say this to you is because I love to give, I love to give everybody here who's mean and nasty the benefit of the doubt. I love to do that. I don't know that I can, but I love to do that. I'd love to believe that those who heard it being convicted by their conscience followed up on that and realized their sin and embraced Christ as Savior, but I can't positively say for sure they did that. Any more than I can go back to Saul, who on several occasions, his conscience convicted him, and he said to David, I've sinned, I've done the wrong thing, but then he was after David again the following day. It didn't sink in. But I would like to give them the, 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 uh, the benefit of the doubt. There's another group of people that I would like to give the benefit of the doubt over in chapter, in chapter 8. The Bible tells us in chapter 8, verse 30, that as he was speaking words, many believed in him. You see that in verse 30? Many believed in him. And then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, See, because he's kind of singling those who believed him out like those who heard him in verse 9. If you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I'd like to believe that they really did believe. I'd like to believe it wasn't superficial. I'd like to believe it wasn't the emotion of the event. I'd like to believe that it stuck. And maybe it did. But the Bible says in verse 33 that they answered him as soon as he said, the truth shall make you free. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? 
I'd like to believe that that's not that little group of people who believe. I'd like to believe everybody else who kind of converges on Jesus and says, we don't like what you're saying. We don't like what you're saying. Now, since we're right there, here's a great example of the fact that they were really misguided. They answered him, this would include all the religious leaders for sure, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Liars. What about Egypt? Enslaved for 400 years. What about Assyria? The ten tribes got lost in the shuffle there. What about Babylon? Enslaved in Babylon for 70 years. What about the Persian Empire? They were released and allowed to go home, but they were soon subjugated by the Greek Empire. And one of the nastiest things that ever happened to them was when the Greek Empire took over, the king, King Antiochus Epiphanes, took over the actual, took over the actual temple of Jerusalem and says, you're not even free to worship. And who on earth are they in bondage to right now? In John 8, the Roman Empire. And sitting right next to the temple is this huge Roman fortress with a tower that constantly overlooks the temple so that if the Romans don't like anything that's happening, they can disrupt it or do what they want, which they had done. So there, there's a little dishonesty here, isn't there? They, or they're just not thinking straight. How can you say that we're in, we've never been in bondage to anybody? Their minds are so made up that they're not going to believe the truth if it were sitting on their nose. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But anyway... So the Bible tells us that the women, uh, Jesus raised himself up. He saw no one there. He looks at the woman. And he says, where are those accusers of yours? Hasn't anybody condemned you? And Jesus said, no, Lord, nobody's condemned me. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again. And this is where he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, let's put that together. I, you know, I thought about how to do a quick commentary on this, and I thought, you know, the best way is just to read it. The best way is just to read it. So go back to John chapter 3. I can save 10 minutes by doing this. You know that. All I need to do is just read the verses, and you'll understand. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here's the commentary on the fact that Jesus says, Nobody has condemned you. I am not condemning you either. Go and sin no more. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send... Verse 16 first. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil." 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now, isn't that, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? Now you can't accuse Jesus of being lenient. You know, condemnation was there before Jesus even came. And you can't accuse, and, and now you know what walking in darkness is all about. It's walking in the ignorance of our mind, not understanding spiritual truth, and it's walking in the power, the penalty of sin, obviously, but the power of sin. It's walking in the power of sin. I love, uh, I love some of the, I, I refer to these. I was, a, uh, I was big on youth ministry many, many years ago, and uh, now that I'm 70, I have to be careful before I show up at any youth meeting. But anyway, <laughs> I love the Teen uh, Life Application Study Bible. Uh, its application is really, really good. And there's a little note on John chapter 8, verse, uh, verses 32 through 36. Here's the little note. Jesus spoke of the freedom he offered. What's your idea of freedom? Is it having wills that can take you wherever you want to go, being able to make your own choices? But some choices aren't good. In fact, making their own choices caused trouble for Adam and Eve. Consequently, we were all born with a desire to do wrong. That's why Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. He says that in this chapter, by the way. He forces that argument. But the freedom Jesus offers is the, now this is the, this is the punchline, but the freedom Jesus offers is the freedom to choose not to do wrong. Are you free? So Jesus says we're locked into this condemnation because we're slaves to sin. We can't stop it. We, get, we just sin all the time. Uh, there's no way out of this unless Jesus frees us. And that's why he says later on to these disciples who believe, if you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Make you free or set you free. So that you can walk up to any temptation or meet any temptation and say, I'm free I'm not a slave to sin. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. That's exactly what he's talking about. That's exactly what he's talking about. My favorite sermon, and I always told you this, my favorite sermon outline is the sermon outline with the three, where, where, where number one, we are saved from the penalty of sin, freed from the penalty of sin. Number two, we're freed from the power of sin. And number three, y'all know what it is. I've tell, told you this many times. We're freed from the what? Presence of sin one of these days. Isn't that cool? <laughs> how, how good can it get? It can't get any better than that. It can't get any better than that. And so what you have here is you have all of these arguments. Now, we don't have time. I've got five minutes left. We, only, we don't have time to go into all of these arguments to show what they do, I just want to tell you, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and there, there, there are eight additional arguments I didn't even look at yet. And they question Jesus about everything. But in everything that they question Jesus about, they're closed-minded. 
They've already determined what they're going to think, and they're not going to listen to anything that Jesus has to say. It does not matter what he says. Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan pastor years and years ago, said, there is little hope of children who are educated wickedly. If the dye have been in the wool, it is hard to get it out of the cloth. Right? Absolutely right about that. Only one person I know can do that. Jesus can do it. You clearly have the word forgiveness here in 10, even though it's not even listed here. Where are those who accuse you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, Lord, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, remember something. If, if God would give to us the, the, the conversation in its entirety and everything that Jesus said and did, just on this day alone, we would have more than we would be able to deal with in a long, long time. It'd be book length, wouldn't it? So you and I are only getting the little bits and pieces of information that are critical for us to understand. We don't get to hear the rest of the conversation. We don't get to hear everything that happened and everything that was said. But you and I know in verse 10 and 11 and 12 that Jesus is offering forgiveness to this woman and implies that he has forgiven her when he says, just don't go and do it anymore. Just don't go and do it anymore. Now, what I'm going to do here, instead of going into detail on what's happening here, I'm going to pretend that we are sitting at the feet of Jesus, okay? And I'm going to give to you the, out, the, the observations that I had made on this passage of Scripture in my preparation, Okay? Here they are. It's a, it's a rapid fire kind of a thing here, so I don't know if you're going to write them down or not. If anybody wants a copy of them, I can certainly do it. But all you have to do is sit at the feet of Jesus for a little bit, and you'll get all of them. Number one, everybody sins. No exceptions. Number two, there are lots of accusers out there ready to pounce on you with endless condemnation. Right? Absolutely. Number three, follow Jesus and you will not follow me. Let's see, we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. Let's put it in the present tense. Follow me, said Jesus, and, I will, and you will not walk in darkness. You'll not walk in sin. You'll not walk in ignorance. You'll not walk in the power of sin in your life. Number four, I and the Father are not condemning anyone at the moment. God is a judge. Jesus will be the judge. But at the moment, God is being very merciful and very gracious. And Jesus indicates that by saying, I've not come into the world to condemn the world. Verse number five, but don't die in your sin because judgment will follow. Six, believe that I am God, that God is our Redeemer, and you won't die in your sin. Seven, play close attention to my death, burial, and resurrection. Then you'll know who Jesus is. I love this because in verse 28, I just want to mention this to you. When you, when you read verse 28 where Jesus answers their, their scathing. I mean, these guys are just mean and nasty in almost everything they say. They ridicule him. They're sarcastic. They're, um, they're just 
But anyway, Jesus says, when, when I'm lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up, you'll know who I am. Pay attention. In other words, pay attention to the crucifixion. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. John chapter 3, right? He, he brings it out again in John chapter 12. That lifting up of Christ refers to his death, his burial, his resurrection. And it includes his ascension as well. And we need to pay attention to that. I'm amazed at how much the church does not pay attention to that today, the so-called church. But anyway, number eight, abide in my word and you will easily identify as belonging to me. And if you know the truth, it will set you free. Number nine, don't be fooled into thinking that you are free to do what you want, when you want, where you want, how you want. Because that just indicates that you're a slave to sin. Number 10, don't try to identify with Abraham or Christ, for that matter, if you don't have any intention of obeying. If you just don't have any intention of listening and obeying, why, why do you even say, I'm Christ, or I'm of Father Abraham? And they do a bunch of that in here, too. Now, there's only three more here. 11, and there's a big section in here. You want to read it this week, probably, if you didn't. Uh, you act more like the devil if you're the kind of person who wrongfully accuses and lies and, and assassinates people's reputations and all that kind of stuff. It's in there. The Bible says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and a liar. Number 12. Keep my word, said Jesus, and you won't see and you won't taste death. You'll actually go from life to life. And the last one. Jesus says, if you don't like me and you think you know God, you are deceived. Because knowing God is knowing me. Wow. I had to do that. All right. So you could get all my application and... <laughs> And uh, you can find it for yourself. It's all in there. It's all in there. I didn't twist nothing. It's all in there. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are one with the Father. Father, we thank you that, uh, uh, that you have shown us clearly who you are. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to take on the form of man. So that by being lifted up in your death in your burial and resurrection, you offer salvation to all of us who trust you. Lord, in your precious name, we thank you. Amen.